Children can go on down to Children's Church, Junior Church, is that what we call it? (laughs) Or toddle time if you're one of the younger kids. Dennis has provided an excellent preface to our message this morning, so that's always good. I'm going to throw out a few phrases as we get started this morning just to get the gears turning a little bit. Uh, to set up what Jesus has to say to us this morning. Debt to income ratio. The value of your home or your cars. Money in the bank. Net worth. Current value of your retirement accounts. How much land or property you own. These are all ways that we measure how wealthy people are. In the ancient world, they would have included a person's wardrobe how many outfits you had and what material they were made of, as well as how much grain you had in storage. Wealth is measured and recognized culturally. Different things have different values to different people groups. Even money itself is valued differently in different countries. For example, if someone from Indonesia traveled to the United States with 15,000 rupias, which is the Indonesian common currency, that person couldn't buy anything with their 15,000 rupias. No American store would accept rupias as a valid form of payment. And so they'd have to make a currency exchange. They'd turn in their 15,000 rupias in exchange for a single American dollar bill. For citizens of the heavenly kingdom, how do we measure wealth? What's the currency of the kingdom of God? Can a Christian get rich? And if so, what is the nature of that richness? Jesus wasn't silent about money, as has been famously recognized. He talked about money more often than he talked about heaven or hell, at least of the things he said that are recorded in Scripture. His disciples, though citizens of the heavenly kingdom, still lived in earthly kingdoms and therefore still had to handle earthly money. And Jesus had much to say about what that should look like for citizens of his kingdom. Much of what he said about earthly wealth had a warning edge. In the midst of the kingdom life discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, he's already spoken of giving money away. He warns of the danger of hypocritical almsgiving, giving money away to help the needy or to support a noble cause in order to be praised by people. Instead, he commands his followers to give away money secretly without seeking the applause or recognition of people. In Matthew 6, 19 to 24, we come to a bridge passage, a passage that flows out of the previous section and sets the stage for the next passage. Matthew 6, 1 through 18, highlighted how Jesus' followers must practice their righteousness without seeking the praise of people, focusing on the Jewish practices of almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, in contrast to the Pharisees' tendency to practice these things, wanting people to praise them. In Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Jesus famously addresses anxiety and worry that will be centered around material things. Here, in verses 19 to 24, in between those two passages, Jesus speaks of treasuring up treasures in heaven, having single-vision eyesight, and serving God, all in contrast with 
treasuring up treasures on earth, having an evil eye, and serving stuff. We'll draw out some of the connections to the previous passage as we go along this morning. Let's get the whole passage in front of us. Matthew 6, 19-24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus deals with contrasting pairs in this section. First, he speaks of two treasures or two treasuries, one on earth and one in heaven. Second, he speaks of two eyes, a healthy single or good eye and a bad or evil eye. Third, he speaks of two masters, God and money or possessions. Verses 22 and 23 in the middle of this section about the two eyes are the hardest to understand. The first section and the third section both end with proverbial statements that press home Jesus' point. To make sure we get that point, I want to begin by looking at those two proverbial statements together. So look at verse 21 and the final statement of verse 24 together. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says that your treasure can be in only one of two places. It's either on earth or it's in heaven. If you're wondering where your heart is, look where you store your treasure. For followers of Jesus, our hearts must not be divided. Our hearts are either in heaven or on earth. Now Jesus knows that at times... His followers will have and do have divided hearts, either in ourselves, uh, have divided hearts in certain ways. When we discover a divided heart, either in ourselves or in our brothers and sisters, we need to realize that something is very wrong. Jesus speaks of your heart as the very core of who you are. Jesus will later refer to the heart as the source of all kinds of sin. But then, for the follower of Jesus, he will speak of the greatest commandment as being to love God with our whole heart. For Jesus, the heart is not merely the source of our affections or feelings. It's the place where our fundamental identity is shaped. And for his followers, our identity must be shaped by our faith in and allegiance to Jesus. A Christian is fundamentally one who is united to Christ, a person who is in Christ. If you are in Christ, then Christ is in you. And when Christ is in you, it won't be only sin that comes out of your heart. The thoughts, the words, the actions, the choices, the motives that flow out of the Christian's new heart make visible our genuine belief in and allegiance to Jesus. If you're not sure where your heart is, look where you store your treasure. 
We'll come back to what this metaphor means in just a minute. Consider again Jesus' final statement in this section from verse 24. You cannot serve God and money. He's saying the same thing. If you want to know where your heart is, look at who you are serving. The word translated money is actually an Aramaic word, mammon, that refers to possessions more broadly. Here, Jesus is personifying human possessions as though they were a slave owner. Possessions end up possessing you, right? But he puts an interesting spin on the slave imagery. When we think of a slave serving a slave owner, serving a master, we think of the slave doing things that benefit the master. A slave might work on the master's property, cultivating his garden, producing, ensuring that what has been planted grows and produces a healthy crop. The slave's labor benefits the master. But we don't work to benefit our money or our possessions. So Jesus is able to use the slave imagery to communicate two ideas at once. One idea is that the master owns and controls the slave. A slave is not free to choose much for himself. But the second idea is the idea of worship. The language of serving can shade over into the language of worship. Paul uses this word serve in a similar way in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, where he's encouraging the Thessalonian Christians by telling them how he knows that God chose them. The evidence he presents is that people can see how much they've changed. If God's changing them today, that's evidence that he chose them before the foundation of the world. He writes, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They had been serving false gods as slaves of false gods, but now they serve the living and true God as slaves. Their rituals, their acts of worship dedicated to these idols could be described as slave service. Now their identity has been changed, and they are slaves of the true God. And they live their lives in worship and devotion to their true master. Thus, when Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money at the same time, he is saying you can't live your lives working in a way that highlights and emphasizes the value of money. John Piper writes, you serve money by treasuring it so much that you shape your whole life to benefit from what money can do for you. Followers of Jesus must live our lives working in a way that highlights and emphasizes the value of God. We can't have it both ways. To adapt Piper's statement and turn it to describe our relationship with God, we serve God by treasuring Him So much that we shape our whole lives to benefit from what God has done and promises He will do for us. That's the main point this morning. Evaluate yourselves. Do your choices. Especially in relationship to your possessions and your income. Point to you valuing money and stuff too highly. Does your heart live or camp out on earth where all your treasures are stored? As Paul says, Christian, you have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You have been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Your life, your identity is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. We'll come back to this and provide some practical outworking of how this could look in just a bit. Let's now unpack the details. Turn to verses 19 to 21. Jesus begins with a negative command. Don't treasure your treasures on earth. That's a literal way of putting it. In light of the reward language from the previous paragraphs, this could be a way of summarizing the warnings he gave regarding hypocritical righteousness. If you practice your righteousness only to be praised by people, you will have only that as your reward. The praise of people is one treasure that you might accumulate on earth. But the praise of people for the good deeds they see you doing might take the form of more than verbal compliments. People might literally give you stuff because of what they've seen you doing. Now, I think Jesus is going beyond what he was saying in the previous paragraphs as well. He mentions specifically that the treasures that we might treasure up on earth can be destroyed by moths. That would refer to clothing. Even today, when I see a moth in our house, my wife insists that I get rid of it because we have seen the clothes in our closet developing mysterious holes. Moths don't tend to destroy your clothes while you're wearing them. Rather, they get into your closets and go after the stuff hanging up. As I mentioned earlier, in the ancient world, clothing was often an indicator of wealth. The average Jewish person would only own one or two outfits, and the word outfit might not be quite accurate. Given that reality, moths destroying a person's one major article of clothing would be a real problem. But... If you are wearing that one outfit every day, it's unlikely moths are going to get to it. Instead, Jesus is painting the picture of a wealthy person in his day who might have a wardrobe and who might accumulate different colors and different fabrics and different styles in order to impress different kinds of people or simply to show off their own luxury. It's the accumulation of clothing that requires a storage closet And it's the accumulation of clothing that sets up a situation where moths might be a persistent threat. Jesus also speaks of some treasures being destroyed by rust. At least, that's what most of our English Bibles have here, usually with a footnote indicating some alternatives. The word is literally eating or consuming. Rust could be viewed as an eating of metals. However, in every other passage where the word appears, it refers to food. Thus, Jesus may be considering the way wealthy people often hoarded grain. Jesus described this common situation in a parable in Luke 12, where the foolish farmer went to build bigger barns to store his surplus of grain. But then he died and faced God's judgment, indicating that none of that surplus was now going to do him any good. Thus, instead of rust eating away precious metals, Jesus is probably envisioning the threat of rats or worms, eating up someone's stored-up grain. The foolishness of hoarding treasure on earth is on display here. The smallest of animals can ruin everything. Finally, Jesus refers to the human danger of sinful sinful people stealing our stuff. The word translated break-in literally refers to digging into something, so that Jesus is probably envisioning a wealthy person who has hidden their money or their precious metals or some other valuable objects either in the walls of their home 
or by burying them outside of the house somewhere. People can ruin your stuff too. But the most important point to see in all of this is the location. These are all treasures stored on earth. And since they are on earth, they are vulnerable to destruction of a variety of forms. The value of money, the value of substances changes over time, and it all has a tendency to depreciate. Even if our savings accounts are drawing interest, the inflation we're experiencing in our society makes all that interest and all those savings worth less. Our investments may be wise and our investments may be necessary to survive in later years or to have something to pass on to our children, but we dare not invest in such a way that we wrap up our identity in those things, in that stuff. The hearts of Christians must be found elsewhere. Citizens of the heavenly kingdom must store their treasures in heaven. There they are kept permanently safe and secure from earthly threats. The question is, how do you store your treasures in heaven while you are still living on the earth? And what are the treasures? As we looked at a couple of weeks ago in the previous passage, it seems that Jesus wants us to connect these treasures with the rewards offered in connection with our obedience to Jesus, with our practicing a secret righteousness Thus, we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven by obeying Jesus without seeking the praise of people. So, as we obey Jesus during our lives, we are accumulating rewards, treasures stored in heaven for now, which will be divvied out when we are raised from the dead on Judgment Day. If the treasure is the heavenly rewards we talked about a couple of weeks ago, then this is a way of picturing our personalized, unique experience of eternal life in the new creation. What we do as Christians during this life matters for eternity. Our deeds do not contribute to our becoming citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Once we've become citizens of the heavenly kingdom, by trusting King Jesus and repenting of our sin, our deeds demonstrate our heavenly citizenship, even as we continue to live on earth. And our deeds enrich our experience of our heavenly citizenship in the new creation when we get there. My identity has been radically transformed. The moment I began trusting Jesus, I became a new creation a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, belonging to the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth that will be centered on the new Jerusalem. That identity shapes how I live today. In other words, my heart is planted firmly in the new creation. How I live my life today, seeking to be obedient to Jesus, puts on display my hope, my confident expectation of heavenly, eternal rewards from my Father in the future. Jesus shifts the imagery in verse 22 rather abruptly. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. We'll stop there for the moment. The metaphor is puzzling. 
Before we get the metaphor, let's grapple with the framing imagery of the healthy eye versus the bad eye, as the ESV puts it. First, consider the bad eye. The phrase could be translated the evil eye. The concept of the evil eye is rooted in the Old Testament and has a specific meaning. The phrase appears in Proverbs 28:22, which says, A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. The phrase translated a stingy man is literally a man whose eye is evil. As the ESV footnote tells us, or as you can see in the New American Standard, the New King James, and the King James Version. Essentially, the evil eye refers to someone who is not generous. The eye is evil in the sense that it looks at a person in need, and even though he has the means to provide what is needed, he refuses to do so. If that is the way Jesus is using the image, then we would expect the opposite to refer to a generous person. The ESV has Jesus describing the alternative as a healthy eye. The Greek word is not easy to translate. The King James Version provides the literal meaning. It says, if therefore thy eye be single. Single as opposed to double. Jesus could have made much of a contrast between single vision and double vision. But instead, he speaks of single vision versus the evil eye. What could Jesus mean by referring to the single eye? If he means to suggest the idea of generosity, which seems likely, perhaps the eye is single in the sense that it takes one look at a person in need, and responds by providing what is needed without a second glance at his own resources. The kind of generosity the Bible consistently portrays of God's people is on display as our reflex when confronted with someone in need is to help. We have a single-minded intention to do good to needy people. This is the opposite of the hypocrites we met earlier who give alms, who give money away to help needy people, but are looking around expecting observers to praise them. Back to Jesus' particular use of this imagery. Verse 22 begins with a puzzling metaphor. The eye is the lamp of the body. Now, if that stood alone, if Jesus didn't elaborate the way he does... We might make sense of this image by thinking what we look at or what we focus on functions like a lamp for the body, meaning that what we look at or what we focus on provides guidance and direction for where we walk, like a lamp does for our body. However, that's not what Jesus is saying. He is speaking of a lamp that provides light that goes into and fills up our bodies. Jesus is saying something different than we expect. As I put together this sermon, I sat at home in front of my Christmas tree. Light shined out from its many tiny light bulbs. The source of the light was the bulbs on the tree. In a sense, that light shined out from the bulbs through my eyeballs into my brain, which then processed it as light so that I had the experience of seeing the light. Jesus and his listeners understood similarly, but more simply. 
rather than specifically entering the brain, they recognized how light spreads out in a dark, open space. And they understood the experience of being confronted with a suddenly bright light and how it impacts you when you look straight into it and it can feel like you've been consumed or filled up by light, overwhelmed by light. Jesus plays with that understanding here, but he presents the eye itself as the source of light. But he's not focusing on the general idea of what you look at. Rather, he's illustrating the concept of generosity versus stinginess. So, the eye is the lamp of the body. And then he shows how one kind of eye lights up the inside of a body, while another kind of eye darkens the inside of a body. Perhaps we should remember what Jesus said about light just a bit ago in this same sermon. Back in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus had said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A couple of weeks ago, we held this verse in tension with verse 1 of chapter 6, where Jesus has instructed us to practice our righteousness in secret so that people won't praise us instead of God. In 5.16, light shining out of us was a picture of us doing good works. Perhaps that is relevant here as well. When he speaks of the body being full of light, perhaps he means that we are full of light that then emanates out from us in the form of good works. Thus, the source of our good deeds is a single eye, an eye that looks at people who might benefit from our good works and simply reflexively acts to provide what they need. Said differently, the source of our good works is generosity. Tying this in with the previous section, verses 19 to 21, followers of Jesus store their treasures in heaven by expressing their generosity and giving away their resources to help others, rather than hoarding it for themselves as treasure on earth. As commentator David Garland puts it, the way to store wealth in heaven that will escape the ravages of earth is to give it away on earth. The contrast comes then as a warning. If the evil eye is the lamp of our body, That stingy, ungenerous attitude is going to fill us only with darkness, which would then picture a refusal to provide for needy people. Earlier, he addressed the disciples as the light of the world. So here to say in verse 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness is a terrifying warning. One of the disciples will demonstrate what an evil, ungenerous eye is is like. One of the disciples will show the kind of darkness Jesus is referring to here. In the face of incredible generosity, as a woman unloaded a massive amount of expensive perfume on Jesus, one of the disciples looked at this act with his eye and had something to say. We have his words recorded for us forever in John 12, 5. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That's almost a year's salary. Now, that question sounds like a generous person frustrated with someone else's lack of generosity. But John 
exposes the heart of this other disciple in the next verse. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would betray Jesus to the authorities, illustrates the evil eye. Judas Iscariot put up a facade, wore a mask of generosity in his comment, covering up a heart full of darkness. Judas had been storing treasure on earth. Judas' heart was stuck here on earth. Judas' heart was trapped, imprisoned here on the earth. At the end of Matthew 6, 23, Jesus presses the warning home sharply. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Indeed, you can't be the light of the world if the light in you is darkness. Stinginess stinginess with our resources reveals and reflects the darkness within. Greed and materialism reflects the darkness of the heart. If you're holding on to earthly treasures, you're revealing where your heart is. And like Judas, that kind of internal darkness shows that a person is on the path not to the new creation, but to the place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The alternative Jesus presents indicates that his followers should be ready to part with their earthly treasures, especially in order to help other people who are in need. Finally, Jesus presses home his point in the language of slavery. Look at verse 24 again. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Ancient slavery involved a master's total ownership and a slave's total allegiance. Jesus imagines a situation that would have been ludicrous to his audience. But the ridiculousness of the situation to their minds would have ensured that his point was crystal clear. Inevitably, if a slave attempted to serve two masters, the master's interests would at some point, probably rather quickly, collide. This would put the slave in the impossible situation of trying to figure out how to please both of them how to fulfill both of their demands. In doing so, the slave would inevitably elevate one above the other, prioritize one's commands over the other's commands. Perhaps the slave would attempt to do that based on how well each of the masters treated him. It would be inevitable for the slave to think of one of them contemptuously, to view him as less worthy of his devotion and his obedience, and ultimately to hate and reject him even though the slave has no right to do that. And he would inevitably commit himself ever more sincerely to the other one, showing his preference and affection for him over the other. However, as we talked about earlier, given the final statement, you cannot serve God and money, we should realize that Jesus shifts the imagery from slave labor to worship. As he applies this impossible scenario to slave master God and slave master stuff, He presents the possibility that we might despise God, that we might hate God in favor of the stuff of this world, whatever money can buy in this culture. How we spend our money, what lengths we go to in order to get more, 
money can expose the devotion of our hearts and demonstrate who our God really is. Going back to the previous passage in our sermon from a couple of weeks ago, whose rewards are you seeking? Are you seeking the rewards of people, the verbal praise, the societal recognition, the monetary benefits that the world around you can provide when you do your good deeds so that other people will see and respond? Said differently, are you seeking to hoard earthly treasure on earth? Said yet differently, where is your heart? On earth or in heaven? Said still differently, who is your master and where does he live? Is your master the things of this world, the things money can buy, mammon, who lives only on the earth? Or is your master the one true God, the Lord Jesus, seated on his throne in heaven, worthy of all devotion, all love, all worship forever and ever? Our loyalties must not be divided. Don Carson writes, either God is served with a single-eyed devotion or he is not served at all. Attempts at divided loyalty betray not partial commitment to discipleship, but deep-seated commitment to idolatry. As Christians, we have been bought and paid for in full. And God has graciously given us a new identity, His slaves. We have the great privilege of serving the best master in the universe, the only true master of the universe. As we conclude, let's return to one of the questions we started with. What is the nature of richness in the heavenly kingdom? What's the currency of the kingdom of God? Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. To illustrate this truth, he told the parable of the foolish farmer we alluded to earlier. Verses 16 to 20. He told them a parable saying... The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool! This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Then Jesus presses home the point in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You can either spend your life filling your earthly storehouses with stuff. Or you can be rich toward God. But what does it mean to be rich toward God? James speaks of being rich in faith. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? Before creation, God chose poor people, people who have nothing to commend themselves to God, to be rich in faith. God chose us so that our wealth would not be defined by our stuff, but by our faith in Jesus. God chose us to become heirs of the kingdom. And James says heirs of the kingdom are those who love God. Thus, God chose us so that we would believe in Jesus and love God. 
Our faith in Jesus, our love for God, is not the cause of God's election. It's the God's goal of election. Paul provides the flip side of true wealth for the Christian. He instructs Timothy how to challenge the earthly wealthy in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, we read, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is reflecting Jesus' words in our passage. These are, there are rich Christians, Christians with earthly wealth, and neither Paul nor Jesus condemns that situation outright. Rather, Paul here insists that Christians can be wealthy, but they must not be proud because of the wealth they've earned or attained. Whether it be through hard work and building a business or through savvy investments, Christians who gain a lot of money must not think highly of themselves because of their net worth. And they must not trust in their riches, put their hope in their money. You can't count on money to be there when you really need it. You can't count on money to last forever. You can't count on money to provide your most important needs. Money and possessions are not worth your worship and your trust. As Jesus says, they will fade, disappear, be destroyed, get stolen. Instead, In spite of the large amount of resources you might have, Christian, your hope, your trust must be rooted in God alone. Regardless of your net worth, in the kingdom of God, your wealth is measured by your faith, as James said, and by your good works, as Paul says here. Doing good works, particularly using your wealth to do good works, is what Paul has in mind here. The word Paul uses for generosity is a beautiful word that literally depicts the rich Christian as a good sharer. You're really good at sharing. I want my daughter to be really good at sharing. And God wants all of his children to be really good at sharing. Then the word translated ready to share expands that with a word from the fellowship family. Of words. Rich Christians don't hope in their riches, don't hoard their riches. Rich Christians share their riches. And Paul says what Jesus says sharing earthly wealth, doing good deeds with what God has given to us, stores up heavenly rewards for us. Good deeds now, during our earthly life, lays the foundation for your experience of eternal life in the new creation. This metaphor reminds me of a song from the 90s by a Christian musician known simply as Eli. He has a very unique voice that my wife and I have enjoyed over the years. I don't think he's put anything out recently, and I don't know what happened to him. But one of his most well-known songs is called The Lumber Song. It's a traditional poetic presentation of what happens when a Christian dies, including St. Peter welcoming the soul at the pearly gates, mansions, and some unfortunate talk of deserving. Ignoring those false features for just a moment, the song tells the story of the person's soul entering heaven and taking a tour of the neighborhood, as it were. And the departed soul comes to the place he is to occupy, and at that point, the lyrics go like this. 
past a mansion made of stone, but with each new house he's shown, they get smaller by degrees. Stopped in front of a two-room shack. Pete said, hope you're happy with that. The man said, how can this be? And then the, the chorus begins like this. That's all the lumber. That's all the lumber. That's all the lumber you sent. The man is clearly disappointed, especially after having seen an epic mansion, and he begins wondering what might have been. So he asks St. Peter if he could be sent back, and St. Peter says no, but asks the man, what would you do differently? The man's answer goes like this. I'd love God and fellow man, take a wife and make a stand, be the givingest guy I can be. And when I get back to this neighborhood, there'd be a gigantic pile of wood. If you don't take the poetry literally, there is a kernel of truth wrapped up in the imagery, and it's exactly the kind of thing Paul is describing by suggesting that doing good works now produces a treasure that serves as a beautiful foundation, like the foundation of a house or the foundation of a building, a beautiful foundation for what is to come, which is eternal life in the new creation. This also reflects what the Apostle John heard and recorded in Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. You've heard the saying, Hearses don't pull trailers, right? Meaning, you can't take your accumulated earthly goods with you when you die. However, your deeds will go with you. What you do in this life matters forever. So for the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, our wealth is to be measured by our faith in Jesus, which then flows out into deeds of obedience to Jesus. That's the kind of wealth we should want in this life. Returning to 1 Timothy 6.17 for just a moment, Paul also speaks of God's wealth. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The stuff of this world can be rightly enjoyed by Christians. The problem is not wealth. The problem is not money. The problem is not possessions. The problem tends to be that we turn these good things into God things. We tend toward worshiping created things in exchange for the Creator Himself. In an excellent book entitled The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts, author Joe Rigney writes, We are rebels to our back teeth, and we don't receive one good thing from God that we don't erect into a monument of false worship. And yet, the Lord, the one true God, provides out of His riches, out of His wealth, all things for us to enjoy. He knows we're prone to worship the gifts He gives, but He keeps giving anyway. The question then becomes, how do we avoid serving stuff, worshiping wealth rather than God? If we combine what we looked at from Colossians 3 earlier, the command that we should set our minds on things above, with Paul's famous instruction in Philippians 4, 8, we might gain some traction on how best to relate to material things. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Where are these things to be found? On the earth, in the world around us. So we set our minds on heavenly things, on Christ himself especially, and that starting point gives us the right framework, the right perspective, to then pay attention to the good things God has given in the world. I have been guilty of viewing money specifically as a necessary evil. Instead, I should view it as something that God has provided for me to use for his glory, for the benefit of others, for meeting my own and my family's material needs, and for grateful enjoyment of other gifts the Lord provides in the world. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell says, you cannot serve God and money, but you can serve God with money. Also, Deuteronomy 8.18 reminds us, you shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. He enabled the Israelites to get wealth as an outworking of his promises to Abraham and his offspring. He enables us Christians to get wealth as an outworking of his grace in Christ. God gives earthly riches to people. Beyond this, our God has used his own wealth for our benefit. Have you noticed how often Paul uses wealth or riches language with relationship to God in his character and in his actions to save us. I'm going to run through these real fast. Consider in Romans 2.4, he speaks of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. God is wealthy in the currency of kindness, in the currency of forbearance, in the currency of patience. In Romans 9.23, we learn that God is seeking to make known the riches of his glory. For vessels of mercy. God is wealthy in the currency of glory. And he wants to show that to us. Paul says he forgives our trespasses, our failures, according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.7 God's wealth is tied to his glorious inheritance in the saints. In Ephesians 1.18, in Ephesians 2.4, it is because God is rich in mercy and great in love that he grants dead sinners eternal life. He shows his wealth of grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 2.7. The gospel itself is about proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ in Ephesians 3.8. And in Ephesians 3.16, it is according to the riches of his glory that Paul prays God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So how do we know? How do we know? That God can do that. That God can strengthen you in your inner being. Because God is crazy rich in glory. That's also how we know He will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus, as He says in Philippians 4.19. Did you know that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us richly? Through Jesus Christ our Savior, Titus 3.6. Christians don't get different amounts of the Holy Spirit. No. Some don't get a little and others get a lot. Every Christian receives the fullness of the Spirit the moment we first believe in Jesus. 
Our salvation is dependent on God sharing His riches with us. Our God is bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Romans 10, 12. Salvation itself is the greatest treasure. Our faith in Jesus, our good deeds in obedience to Jesus, that's the currency we trade in. That's how citizens of the heavenly kingdom measure true wealth. Being rich toward God matters infinitely more than how much money is in your bank account. But remember how God comes to share His wealth with you. And this is what should fuel and motivate our generosity in all of its forms and our good deeds. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. When God grants grace to sinners, saving sinners from slavery, He enriches those sinners, making them wealthy in the currency of the heavenly kingdom, rich in faith, rich in good works. The eternal Son of God, who has enjoyed the wealth of God for eternity, all of those riches of kindness, grace, mercy, we talked about a minute ago, including and especially the riches of His glory, volunteered to divest himself of the benefit of those riches. He allowed himself to be treated as a pauper, though he is the true prince. When Paul says he emptied himself in Philippians 2.7, we could view it as him emptying his heavenly bank account. He accepted poverty, even though he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He was treated as destitute, even though he has the title deed to the universe. He even lived a literally poor life so that the first place he ever laid his human head was in a feeding trough for animals, born to parents who couldn't even afford to offer a lamb as a sacrifice. From that impoverished beginning to a shameful death on the cross, for the final few years of his life, the Son of Man had no place to lay his head, no place to call his earthly home. And as he died on that cross, he died without even the dignity of clothing. By his poverty, you have become rich. By his wounds, you have been healed. If you don't know Jesus personally, you might find all this bizarre and irrelevant. Maybe you have earthly wealth. You have a closet full of clothes, a bank account full of money, and you're pretty sure what you're about to eat for lunch today. Have you considered what will happen to your stuff when you die? Or perhaps more urgently still, have you thought about the possibility that this Jesus we've been talking about might show up today? They killed him in his poverty, but haven't you heard? He didn't stay dead. He's the king over the kingdom we've been talking about, and he has indeed promised to return. If you're alive on that day, you won't be able to impress him with your clothing. And he doesn't take bribes. He's offering you true wealth today, free of charge. All that you've accumulated, you really can't take that stuff with you. Christian, what is your relationship to money, to possessions, to your stuff? If you're a follower of Jesus, beware of the danger money presents. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
Money is not the source or root of evil. If I can strip Paul's statement to its bare bones meaning, he is warning us that love is the root of all evil. I want you to be shocked by the way that I just said that. Love is the root of all evil. But of course, love itself is not the problem, but the object of our love. Misplaced love is the root of all evil. Loving the wrong things causes us to sin. From that stark statement, we can pull the rest of Paul's words back in. Money love is one cause, a root of all kinds of evil. Christian, be warned. Loving money can lead you away from trusting Jesus. And loving money will result in devastating pain. Be willing and even eager to part with your stuff. Live generously. Express your love and devotion to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. And store up treasures in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus pulling no punches in his teaching. He warns us of the danger of these things because he loves us. We can so easily destroy ourselves because of the wonderful things that you have provided in this world. Help us as your people to not get distracted, to not lose our sight of the true priority of worshiping Jesus and Jesus alone. Help us to prioritize the rest of our lives including our stuff, our resources, our plans, how we're going to use the money that you have given to us. Help us to prioritize those things in ways that line up with your concerns, your priorities. Soon, next Sunday even, we will hear Jesus say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So it is that with our money, with our resources, we need to be seeking first your kingdom, your priorities, your righteousness. So help us do that. Help us to be faithful in that regard. And we give you thanks. We marvel at the way that your son was willing to let go of all of those riches, to make himself poor, to allow himself to experience true and deep and utter poverty, having had everything so that we could share in his wealth. Oh, Father, help us to marvel at that wondrous gift and that wondrous exchange. It cost him everything. It costs us nothing. Help us to devote ourselves to serving you faithfully and to commit ourselves fully to following you and making all that we have and all that we are at your disposal. Help us to love you with all our minds, all our hearts, all our souls, and all our stuff. We want to give you praise for all of it. Thank you, again, for your word and the power that it has to change us from greedy, stingy people into generous people. It is your word and your spirit that can do that alone. We can't make that change on our own. So would you do that in us? Help us to be ever more generous. Thank you for your presence with us and your care for us in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think we've got a couple of announcements, so hang tight.